Welcome to People, Parasites, and Plagues. I am Liliana Salvador. And I'm David Peterson, your host for today's episode. Today's topic is coronavirus in poultry, and our guest is Dr. Mark Jackwood from the Department of Population Health at the College of Veterinary Medicine. Although most people recently learned about coronaviruses, this class of virus was first discovered many decades ago. Today, we will talk with a scientist who has spent much of his career on studying coronaviruses in poultry and can offer us some insight into these pathogens and the vaccines developed to counter them. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Jackwood, the J.R. Glisson Professor of Avian Medicine. He's the head of the Department of Population Health at the College of Veterinary Medicine here at UGA, and he works at the Poultry Diagnostic and Research Center. His main area of research is avian medicine, specifically avian coronaviruses. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. I really appreciate the invite and, and look forward to the opportunity to talk about some of our research. So I, I want to lead off just by mentioning that you're probably one of the few people in the world who's designed a successful vaccines against a coronavirus. Yeah, we've actually designed several successful vaccines against a coronavirus. Uh, the unique thing about the virus that we work with in chickens is that there's multiple different serotypes. So when we encounter a new serotype, we have to develop a, a new vaccine to be able to protect against it. And Mark, you are in the Department of Population Health. Uh, you're actually the head of the Department of Population Health. Could you tell us a little bit about the kinds of research that are done in your department? Wow, yeah, so that's a, that's a great <laughs> There's a lot of research being done on all different types of animals. We're a fairly large department, and we have a group that works with food animals, so uh, cattle, swine, uh, small ruminants. A lot of the research that is being done there is very practical research, clinical research, if you will, uh, into problems that uh, those animals have uh, in the field. We have our, our squidus group or our wildlife disease group. A lot of the work that's being done there is done with looking at the wild animal and human interface and looking at those diseases, diseases like uh, rabies and influenza and those kind of things. We have our poultry group, the Poultry Diagnostic and Research Center. Uh, there's a diagnostic lab there, so we do a lot of research on developing new diagnostic tests for the poultry industry. We do also do a lot of research on poultry pathogens uh, associated with commercial poultry operations. And this includes uh, what I work with, which is avian infectious bronchitis virus and uh, developing diagnostics and vaccines for it. So Mark, we mentioned already that you've developed coronavirus vaccines. Now, these are vaccines that protect against the infectious bronchitis virus? That's right. So the coronaviruses are divided into four different groups, alpha, beta, gamma, and delta coronaviruses. The, the gamma coronaviruses are where the, what we call the avian group, uh, where the uh, avian virus is infectious bronchitis virus, which is a respiratory disease in chickens, uh, as well as turkey coronavirus, which is an enteric disease in turkeys. The vaccines that have been developed for infectious bronchitis virus have been several different types. So we, the ones that are most effective are the live attenuated viruses. Uh, these viruses are attenuated by passing them in a, a laboratory host system. Uh, most of the time that is an embryonated egg. And once it's passed several uh, hundred times, sometimes it's over a hundred times we pass those viruses to attenuate them then they can be used uh, relatively safely uh, in poultry. But being live viruses, uh, they do 
come with a risk of, of reverting to virulence. So we do have to make sure that they are solidly attenuated. The other vaccines that we have for poultry are killed vaccines. And the killed vaccines work really well in our long-lived birds where we're trying to develop some systemic immunity that would be um, that immunity in the hens that would be passed on to the, the progeny or the chicks that would protect the chicks then in the first couple of days of life. So Mark, um, so you've done uh, work on changes in the infectious bronchitis virus spike protein, I believe. And were these changes selected for by vaccine-mediated immunity? Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that type of research? Sure. So one of the unique things about avian infectious bronchitis virus is that it, it is constantly changing to the point where we see new uh, types of the virus emerging in our, our poultry populations. The spike protein that is the, the protein on the outside of the virus is what determines uh, the antigenicity uh, differences among those different types of virus. And we've studied the gene, the spike gene that codes for that protein quite extensively as well as, as the proteins themselves. And what we found is that uh, the virus, as it's allowed to replicate in large populations of poultry, uh, it has the ability to change. And, and two ways that it can change is by mutations. Uh, these are insertions or deletions or changes in the, the nucleic acid sequence, which leads to different amino acids being coded for in the spike protein. Uh, this we call genetic drift. It can happen fairly slowly, uh, relatively slowly, I guess I should say. Uh, the other way the virus can change is by recombination events, where if two or more viruses infect the same animal, we can get uh, a recombinant virus back out of those, which is sort of a hybrid between the two parent viruses that infected those, the animal. Those changes can happen really, really fast. Uh, but the bottom line is for this particular virus, for infectious bronchitis, about every five to uh, seven or eight years, we see a new strain uh, emerge in the population. And when that happens, uh, we don't have vaccines that can protect against it. So we have to develop a new vaccine against that uh, particular strain. Whether, you know, the, the, the virus changes when it's allowed to mutate. It, it just makes mistakes in the genome and the ones that are advantageous to the virus will allow it to be the, the uh, new strain that emerges from those uh, infections. Uh, and this can be driven also by uh, the number of birds, the the amount of virus that's uh, in those birds, how rapidly it replicates, and also the immune response can, can drive some of the changes that we see in this particular virus. And these changes, they are usually annual? Uh, you know, there's like a, a specific time frame where these changes happen and that's why we have to have like an annual vaccine or doesn't work that way? So the, the annual vaccine is what I think you're referring to for the, uh, what we use for influenza. So in the influenza, human influenza vaccines are uh, examined each year. And then that vaccine that we all uh, are supposed to get in the fall is then modified with the most recent strains that are circulating in the population. Uh, for coronaviruses, they don't, we don't quite do it that way. So with coronaviruses, what we see happening is we'll have a dominant strain in the population. Uh, maybe two dominant strains, and, and then we'll vaccinate for those strains. And over time, 
you know, five to, like I said, five to eight years, we'll see the, the strains that are circulating in the populations of our poultry change to the point where they're, the vaccines that we're using are no longer protecting against those. So we'll start to see some disease, uh, mild disease in the birds where uh, we isolate this unique virus, which we then characterize and set out make, to make a new vaccine against it. Uh, because you know we don't see this cross neutralization between the different types occurring. So the way we handle the vaccines for, like I said, for avian coronaviruses and, and the way we do it for flu is very different. It's not an annual thing that we change each year. It's uh, more of an ongoing process where we are constantly monitoring and surveillance uh, is a big deal with this and, and looking at what is circulating in the field so that then we can pick the right vaccines uh, or if we need to uh, work on making a new one. So Mark, there's also been a lot of genetic surveillance of SARS-CoV-2 ever since you know the first sequences were released. And perhaps to everyone's release, uh, relief, there seems to be relatively few mutations that have been seen in this. From your experience with the avian coronaviruses, do you expect to see differences crop up, new genetic types that will necessitate new vaccines every few years? That's a great question. Uh, so it's probably not fair to make a comparison between uh, the avian viruses and how rapidly they change and the mammalian viruses. So the SARS-CoV-2 virus is an is a beta coronavirus. Uh, the beta coronaviruses are are largely mammalian coronaviruses, and they're stable uh, when it comes to changes that could potentially result in a different antigenic type requiring a new vaccine. Uh, we have a lot of viruses in the mammalian group in our veterinary world, like transmissible gastroenteritis, uh, bovine coronavirus, uh, you know, canine coronavirus. We have vaccines for these, uh, and there's only one serotype that's out there and has been only one serotype for many years. So I would suspect that uh, what we're seeing with SARS-CoV-2 at this point, where we're not seeing uh, those changes that would result in a new uh, antigenic variant emerging uh, is a, obviously a very good thing. Uh, and I would expect that it would probably uh, stay that way, where we would be able to create a vaccine that's efficacious uh, this year, and it would probably be uh, efficacious for many years to come. So, Mark, while we're talking about vaccines, I think most of the vaccines target the spike protein. And all the coronaviruses have a spike protein, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. All coronaviruses have a spike protein. And, the, well, the spike protein is probably the the protein that's been uh, researched more than any other protein in, in, in these viruses. And we know a lot about it. Now we have three-dimensional structures for the spike protein. We know that it exists as a trimer uh, and there are receptor binding domains uh, on that spike protein that allow it to attach to the host cell. Um, and uh, while we're on that, not all coronaviruses use the same host cell receptor. The SARS coronavirus, uh, SARS coronavirus 2 uses the ACE2 receptor. Uh, avian coronaviruses use a sialic acid receptor. So, uh, and then there's other coronaviruses that use different host cell receptors. So, but it's the spike that allows the virus to attach to the host cell and to gain entry into the host cell. Spike also has epitopes on it, or these areas on the spike that are unique that induce antibodies in the host that are protective. Uh, 
So that's why we want to use the spike uh, as a vaccine, because we want to induce the immune response in uh, animals or in, in humans that will be able to neutralize the virus and protect the individual. Mark, you mentioned that it's not a fair comparison between the two viruses, that there are many things that are different, but do you think that the technology that has been used to develop a vaccine uh, for um, this virus in poultry could, is the same for humans? Well, that, again, that's another great question. Uh, and I wish I could see into the future and, and know exactly what's going to work and what's not going to work for this uh, particular virus. One of the things I like to be optimistic, and I'm hoping that uh, some of the new technologies that are being explored to create vaccines against the SARS-CoV-2 could potentially be used uh, in our veterinary uh, world for um, coronaviruses of veterinary importance, including the avian coronaviruses. We have, maybe I, I shouldn't go into a lot of depth on this because I don't want to discourage anybody, but we have tried a lot of different molecular vaccines against avian coronaviruses. We've tried messenger RNA, we've tried DNA vaccines, we have tried uh, vectored vaccines uh, against avian coronaviruses. And what we have found is that we can get partial protection with some of those vaccines. They generally require uh, more than one vaccination. And sometimes, you know, not, not just two, but sometimes maybe even three or four uh, vaccinations in, in a particular animal. And they require a lot of the vaccine uh, in, in the dose that we give. Uh, and then even with that, we still only get partial protection uh, using those molecular vaccines against the avian coronaviruses. What we have found is that the live attenuated vaccines do the very best job of protecting birds against avian coronaviruses. The killed vaccines also do a very good job uh, in the longer lived birds. Killed vaccines are difficult to produce sometimes because we have to grow them to very high titers in the laboratory and it's sometimes difficult to grow these viruses in the lab. Uh, the other thing about killed vaccines, uh, in order for them to be very effective, they have to be first, we have to first give a live prime. So we have to give a live vaccine first to prime the animal, and then we can give the killed vaccine and it does a very good job. Now, one of the differences between the avian coronavirus that I work with, infectious bronchitis virus, and, and SARS-CoV-2 is the pathology that's associated with it. So SARS-CoV-2 goes to the lungs, right? And that's where we see a lot of the, the problems and um, people that end up in the hospital or because uh, they have uh, issues with their the virus going to the lungs and the pathology associated with that. The circulating antibodies are antibodies that can be induced by these recombinant vaccines that are being developed for SARS-CoV-2 uh, will do a very good job of protecting the lungs. The avian coronaviruses are upper respiratory. They are in the sinuses, they are in the uh, mucous membranes, uh, the trachea. They generally don't go deep into the lungs to cause problems like that. So that's one of the, the big differences between the two, and why I'm fairly optimistic that the vaccines that are being developed for the COVID-2 virus are, are going to be effective. How effective? Remains to be seen. We'll have to see. I mean, we have influenza vaccines that we use in some years, they're very effective, you know, upwards of, of 80 percent. Uh, last year, I think it was only 40 some percent effective. When we have a vaccine against the SARS-CoV-2, likely it's not going to be 100 percent protective.
which means that we're still going to have to wear masks and we're still going to have to social distance even after we have a vaccine. So Mark, you've, you've done some interesting work with the um, avian coronavirus spike protein, looking at polymorphisms in it and actually correlating those with binding to host tissues and altered antigenicity. And I think I've seen some initial research on SARS-CoV-2 as well. Um, are, are, are folks looking at those same binding issues? Uh, we are not looking at those binding issues with SARS-CoV-2. We have looked at it with, with infectious bronchitis virus, you're right. Um, but yes, there are people that are looking at the binding issues with SARS-CoV-2, not only binding to host cells, but also uh, the antibodies against the spike and the binding of those antibodies to spike, because that can have a, uh, a huge impact on the ability of those antibodies to neutralize the virus and protect the individual. So the stronger they bind, obviously, the more protection we're going to be able to see with those particular antibodies. So the research that's being done is looking at how can we develop antibodies in an animal or in a human that uh, bind very strongly to the circulating virus. And we can do this by actually uh, manipulating the spike protein. We can synthesize the, the gene that codes for spike. We can express that protein in the laboratory, and we can look at variations on that protein as uh, their ability to induce a strong immune response that will give us those antibodies that will bind very tightly to the virus. So I, I don't want to get too technical about antibodies and things, but antibodies can recognize either linear epitopes, which is would just be an array of amino acids in a row, or conformational epitopes, which depend upon kind of the 3D structure of a protein. Do we know anything about the protective antibodies for either IBV or SARS-CoV-2? Are they linear, conformational? Yeah, great question, David. So they are conformational, so which is one of the huge problems that we have with developing vaccines against this particular virus. So the epitopes or those areas on the spike that induce the neutralizing antibodies, the antibodies that are gonna protect the, the animal or the, or the individual. Uh, those are what we call, like you said, conformationally dependent. In other words, if the protein has to be folded uh, faithfully, exactly like it would look when it's attached to the virus, uh, to be able to recreate those areas that will then uh, induce the antibodies that will be able to protect uh, the animal or the, or the person. What we do have is uh, we have three-dimensional structures for the spike. Uh, we, that, and that's fairly recent. That's within just the last couple of years. And there's been a lot of work examining those areas uh, on the spike that do induce the antibodies that we're looking for, those protective antibodies. It's not real clear cut. Uh, we can make uh, changes in that protein uh, outside of those uh, epitopes which will change the way the protein folds and affect the epitope itself so that we do not uh, get that reproduction of that, uh, that three-dimensional structure and the, the conformationally dependent epitope in such a way that we don't get a good antibody response or create a, a, an efficacious vaccine. So those are, are huge issues with this particular virus and, and recreating those epitopes, those three-dimensional uh, conformationally dependent epitopes 
uh, is extremely important to get an effective immune response so that we can get good protection. There has been a lot of discussion about unknown long-term effects of coronavirus on humans. We have cases of patients recovering, but still suffering from fatigue, post-exercise malaise, and even cognitive dysfunctions. Based off of your research in poultry, do you have any evidence of long-term effects? The pathology uh, or the pathogenesis associated with the infectious bronchitis virus, the avian coronavirus, is, is a, it's a, a very mild upper respiratory disease. Uh, it, like I said before, it doesn't go deep into the lungs. It, it remains in the, the trachea, the sinuses. The, you know, it's, it's more like a head cold, if you will, than, than uh, anything else more severe. The severity of, of that disease occurs when we have secondary pathogens coming in, uh, like bacteria, uh, that can now invade the upper immune response because it's been compromised by the virus. So this is where we see most of the disease associated with the avian coronaviruses. A lot of times these secondary pathogens uh, that come in, and that's where we can see some mortality as well. Now, the SARS-CoV-2, you know, one of the unique things that they're seeing with that virus is what you mentioned is that, that some patients just do not seem to recover. The virus is gone. The, they're not, you know, they're not infectious anymore, but they still have uh, pathology associated with that infection and they, and they just take a long time to resolve it for whatever reason. There has been some evidence that has shown that most of those patients have some extenuating circumstances. Uh, they have other health issues that prevent them from responding to and clearing the virus out uh, in a timely manner so that they get a lot more pathology than other patients. And this is you know, where they can get into trouble where it takes a lot longer for them to repair the damage. But I think you know, we're still learning more about this. Uh, you know, the, one of the things that we see with avian infectious bronchitis virus is that the virus can go systemic and then it appears to go away. But if those birds are stressed, we can find virus again sometime later. What that means, really not sure, other than uh, there's a, an immune compromised animal that is now shedding virus again. So are we going to see that with SARS-CoV-2? My guess is, is, you know, anything's possible with these coronaviruses. But I do know that immune compromised individuals are at a much greater risk and do respond differently to the virus than healthy individuals. So do you think that there are certain effective control measures that are already uh, being set um, in poultry that, could, that we could learn from and be applied to aid um, human populations? Unfortunately, probably not. Here's, here's the situation. With, with poultry, a lot of the, the decisions that are made on how to prevent the disease are economic decisions. Uh, we can afford to give poultry vaccines. We cannot afford to give poultry treatments like remdesivir or the polyclonal or monoclonal antibody uh, treatments that uh, we can give to, to the SARS-CoV-2 patients. It's just way too expensive to do that in poultry. So we're fairly limited to trying to control uh, infectious bronchitis virus in poultry with the vaccines that we have available and also with biosecurity. The, in, in human patients, obviously, we can afford to be much more aggressive in our treatments. And this is, I think, where we can make a huge difference in these patients that are immune compromised or patients that have extenuating 
um, healthcare issues uh, where they do not uh, clear the virus very well or they have a lot of pathology associated with it, that we have tools in the toolbox now that have been developed uh, since SARS-CoV-2 came onto the scene earlier this year, where we can, you know, use some of those like remdesivir or the antibody treatments, you know, those, those kind of things, uh, which are just, you know, cost prohibitive in, in poultry. So, Mark, I know we're talking a lot about vaccines today, but it's certainly topical. The speed with which the COVID-19 vaccines are being produced is really astounding. Do you have any thoughts, concerns, whatever, about the pace of vaccine research? I think, well, I agree with you. The, 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 it is astounding how quickly vaccines are, are coming onto the scene against this virus. And I, and I see that as a very good thing. Obviously, the uh, vaccine companies, the biologic companies that are developing these have thrown all of their resources at it, uh, which goes to show if somebody wants to do something bad enough and quickly enough that they can, they can do it. You know, is it going to be safe? I believe and I have faith in the FDA that yes, they are not going to allow a company to release a vaccine that's not safe. Now, safety is a relative thing. I mean, all vaccines have side effects. So we have to uh, weigh the risks against the benefits. And I think that, uh, you know, after we get through phase three trials and the vaccine becomes widely uh, available to the general population, yeah, we're going to see some more side effects that we did not see in those phase three trials just because we're giving it to a lot more uh, people that are very different. Their people are different genetically. They're different with their different situations that they have uh, as far as their health and their health care. So I believe it's going to be a relatively safe vaccine based on the, the risk of getting you know, SARS-CoV-2. And I certainly would not hesitate to take it myself once it, once it comes out. The efficacy is another big question. And a lot of the companies are, you know, we're not talking about efficacy a whole lot. You're not seeing it in the news, but that's going to be a huge issue with these vaccines because if we have a safe vaccine that's only, you know, 20 or 30 percent efficacious, I don't know how good that's going to be for, you know, helping to control this disease. I uh, mean, we, we're going to need a vaccine that, that is, you know, 60 to 80 uh, percent or 90 percent effective to be able to get this pandemic under control. And that's why I say, you know, even when we have a vaccine available to us, we're still going to have to wear masks. We're still going to have to do social distancing because those vaccines, uh, unless they're 100 percent efficacious, and I really doubt that we're going to uh, be able to produce a 100 percent effective vaccine against the coronavirus. That just, you know, I just don't see that happening. So one thing that's also um, I think a really good sign is the vast array of vaccine technologies which are being thrown at at COVID-19. And you've mentioned that for IBV vaccines, it's mostly attenuated vaccines. Um, but we're seeing technologies that have never been brought to market for a vaccine before. And uh, maybe you could talk about a few of those. Sure. So the, the ones that are in uh, phase three clinical trials uh, are the, the messenger RNA vaccines, uh, which have shown quite a bit of promise. Uh, of course, messenger RNA vaccines being what they are would be uh, very safe. Uh, it's not like we're going to have a, an attenuated virus that could revert to virulence. The messenger RNA is not going to do that. The messenger RNA basically is stabilized and then injected into uh, the individual and then 
that then codes for the spike protein, which then the body recognizes as foreign and induces uh, the immune response that'll protect the individual. The technology there that has really uh, accelerated the use of messenger RNA vaccines is the ability to be able to stabilize the messenger RNA. Messenger RNA is a very fragile molecule and it's easily destroyed, uh, particularly after you inject it into an individual or an animal. Uh, so stabilizing that and allowing it to uh, remain in the animal for a period of time so that it can express that spike protein was a huge thing that, they, that has been overcome. The other vaccines that are being looked at, probably the other one that is showing a lot of promise is the adenovirus vectored vaccines. Uh, these adenoviruses are safe. They're not causing any disease in the individual. And what scientists are doing are putting the spike gene from SARS-CoV-2 into that adenovirus and then using the adenovirus as the vaccine. Once it infects the, the uh, individual or the animal, the, the uh, gene from SARS, which is uh, inserted into that adenovirus, will express the spike protein. And again, the body will see that spike as foreign and it will mount an immune response against it. Uh, those vaccines seem to be doing quite well in the phase three trials at this point and show a lot of promise. Other vaccines that are in phase three trials are killed vaccines. Those are primarily being developed by Chinese and they're showing quite a lot of promise as well. The thing that you have to remember about most of these vaccines, except I think for the adenovirus vaccines, they have to be given multiple times. So uh, some of the, the clinical trials that are ongoing are going where we have to vaccinate the individuals two different times. And that's uh, slowing down, I guess, the release of a lot of these vaccines because if we have to wait a period of time and then give a second vaccination to develop a strong enough immune response, those, you know, that time factor and, and waiting until we can do that second vaccination and then waiting that period of time afterwards to make sure that the vaccine is safe and we're not seeing any adverse effects is what can slow things down a bit. But if that's what we have to do, I mean, that's, that's better than no vaccine in my mind. And I think that, you know, if we can get any vaccine out there at this point that's going to give us some protection uh, and people are willing to take it. I see that as a good thing overall. Well, I, I agree with you. I will I will sign up for for the vaccine when it's released. <laughs> that's another big issue, too. I think we need to, to, to look at is, you know, distribution of the vaccine once it's uh, been approved by the FDA is going to be huge. Uh, how is that going to be done? How many doses are going to be available? Who is going to be first in line? I, I think I've heard on the news that the you know first responders and our healthcare workers are going to be the ones that are first in line. And then you know when it comes down to us commoners, when are we going to be able to get the vaccine? Uh, when's it going to be available to us? And that may not be until this time next year. Uh, we just don't know. Yeah, and because it's it's going to be limited at first. It takes a while to ramp up ramp up production. Well, the good news about that is that once you and I get to take the vaccine, David, uh, a lot of other people have already had it. And we're <laughs> sure that it's actually working. Very good point. <laughs> okay, so with us today was Dr. Mark Jackwood of the Department of Population Health. He's shared with us his expertise in coronaviruses and thoughts on, on the vac coming vaccine for COVID-19. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed this and, and uh, really appreciate the opportunity.
Mark, it was really great to have you on the show. Before we leave, could you let us know where our listeners can find more information about your research? Sure. Uh, if you go to the University of Georgia's College of Veterinary Medicine website and click on the link for the Department of Population Health, you'll be able to find our faculty, uh, not just me, but the other faculty that are involved in doing research, uh, important research in animal diseases that also affect humans. And uh, there's a wealth of information there. You can also find my contact information. Uh, if you need more information, uh, you can contact me directly. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun. It was, yeah. That's yeah. what we're aiming for. <laughs> Additional information about Dr. Mark Jackwood's research can be found on our website, ppp.uga.edu, where you will also find information about past and upcoming episodes. People, Parasites, and Plagues is brought to you by the Faculty of Infectious Diseases and the Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia.